Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of the Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host for today's program. Uh, we at Cato uh, have long stood for liberty, of course, um, but as uh, America's philosophical founder, uh, John Locke, uh, made clear, um, liberty is grounded in property, broadly understood, as he put it, lives, liberties, and estates, by which I mean property. James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, stated it succinctly in his famous 1792 essay on property when he wrote, and I quote, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. Thus liberty, rights, and property are inextricably related as is evidenced by the due process clauses and the takings clause of our own Constitution. Yet over the course of the 20th century, with the rise of progressivism, property rights in the ordinary sense have come under increasing assault by ever-expanding government, and the implications for our property in our liberty are plain for all to see. That's uh, what we're here to discuss today. But because our focus today is on only one aspect of the problem, the abuse of the power of eminent domain, before we turn to that, let me say just a word about the broader problem. Eminent domain, today's issue, entails the government's condemnation of private property putatively for a public use and after just compensation is provided. As we'll see all too often, neither of those criteria is satisfied. <clears throat> Again, that will be our main focus today. But there's another way in which property rights are abused today. And in many ways, it's more sinister because more difficult to address. I allude to regulatory takings, whereby in order to provide the public with various goods, such as lovely views or wildlife habitat, historic preservations and the like, government takes or condemns through regulation the leg legitimate uses that an owner has in his property, leaving him with what is in effect an empty or substantially devalued title and no compensation at all. These regulatory takings are happening across America every day as the modern regulatory state grows and the public's demand for such free goods is satisfied off budget. Finally, there are the procedural hurdles that owners face when they try to vindicate their property rights, the endless administrative costs and delays in getting permits, the need to get final administrative ruling before you can get into federal court, the court's response of res judicata. It's a procedural nightmare that exhausts or impoverishes so many, making a mockery of our fundamental right to property. Well, we've got a great program today to discuss at least the first of these problems in some detail, thanks to the fine book that Ilya Soman has just given us. I'll be back after the break to moderate our second panel, but let me now introduce the moderator of the introductory session and our first panel, my colleague, Ilya Shapiro. Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was special assistant advisor to the multinational force on Iraq, on rule of law issues, and he practiced international political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Ilya's co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, a Hobby Lobby, 
the Affordable Care Act and the Constitution. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional journals, including the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the LA Times, USA Today, and many more. He's appeared regularly on CNN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, Univision, Telemundo, The Colbert Report, and even NPR. Um, he uh, provides testimony for Congress and state legislatures and is coordinator of amicuses. Uh, uh, Cato's Amicus, a brief program. He's filed more than 100 such briefs uh, uh, before the uh, Supreme Court. He lectures regularly for the Federalist Society and other groups. Uh, before joining uh, uh, Cato, uh, he clerked for uh, Judge E. Grady Jolly on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Uh, Ilya has his B.A. from Princeton, his master's from the London School of Economics, and his J.D. from the University of Chicago School of Law. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thank you, Roger. We have a packed program, so I'm not going to say very much substantive. I just want to introduce our uh, video opening, the, the dean of property rights, if you will, uh, in America, Richard Epstein. Couldn't be with us uh, today, but he has recorded... Uh, uh, a message for all of us on this important subject. Uh, Richard is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU Law School, also the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, where he was on faculty for 37 years, including when I was there. Uh, and he's a senior fellow at Cato. Uh, I could go on and on about his expertise uh, in numerous areas of the law. Really, it would be easier to list the areas of the law in which he's not uh, an expert. Uh, and he's the author of numerous books, most importantly for our purposes today, Takings, Private Property and Eminent Domain, which is celebrating its 30th uh, anniversary. Uh, and now we asked Richard to record for five minutes, but if any of you know him, you know he's a very fast talker. So we told him also to slow down his speech, so the five minutes became eight minutes. So basically you have, uh, that, that's what we have for you today. Hello, everybody. My name is Richard Epstein. I'm a professor of law at NYU Law School. I am a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Some 30 years ago, I wrote a book called Takings, Private Property and the Power of Eminent Domain, which created a certain stir uh, because what it did was to claim that all of the major innovations of the New Deal were essentially a violations of the Takings Clause. I have not really backed down from that position in the 30 years that have followed, even though there are many surprises that have taken place in the case law. Uh, if anything, the situation today is probably worse than it was then. Uh, the procedural hurdles to raising a takings case in the courts is much more difficult to overcome, and the willingness of the courts to sanction exactions by state legislatures has gotten much greater. Uh, that being said, I think the basic argument that I made in 1985 is still correct, and it starts from the proposition that private property is a comprehensive social institution, that it involves more than the right to exclude, but also uses the right to develop property and to enter it, and to alienate it, either in whole or in part, to other individuals, so that through a set of voluntary transactions, what can happen is you can create very complicated property rights structures of enormous social value. Now, it also turns out that there are certain cases in which the uh, private property system tends to break down. There's an inability to coordinate people. And what the power of condemnation does upon payment of just compensation 
is it allows the state to assemble land or to otherwise regulate property in a way that overcomes these particular difficulties. The Supreme Court in dealing with this issue has really gone in a very different direction. It has narrowed the definition of what counts as property mainly to the right to exclude others and gives very weak protections for use and disposition rights. It has an extraordinarily expanded notion of what counts as the police power so that virtually any other kind of activity that the government wants to take is going to be regarded as okay. It tends to skimp on the compensation that is needed when property is taken for public use. And its last requirement, the public use requirement, is one which has been read to say not that the property has to be used for government purposes, but essentially anything that the legislature regards as appropriate, including economic development, is now covered by public use. And it's this last element which relates to the conference which we're having at the Cato Institute today, and I'm sorry that I can't attend, uh, but the situation here is we're celebrating two events. The event that we're actually celebrating is the publication of Ela Summons' new book, The Grasping Hand, the event that we're lamenting is the Kilo case, Kilo against New London, Connecticut, decided in June of 2005, which is the subject of that book. And I'm also happy to say on the positive side of the ledger that back in 2004, I wrote with the Cato Institute an amicus curiae brief on the side of uh, Miss Kilo and the other property owners in that particular case. And one of the things that we did in that particular brief was to indicate all the ways in which the government could have avoided the particular problem if it had only been a little bit less aggressive. Uh, so there was no reason at the time for the uh, city of New London to take all the land for a development program that it did not need. It could have waited a bit. And when it moves prematurely, it increases the likelihood that there'll be no decent public purpose associated with the operation. In the Kilo situation, there was no need either to take all the plots of land that were involved. This Kilo's plot of land was not, was not essential for any portion of the development. And other plots of lands, like that owned by the Italian Dramatic Club, which may have been in the core of the development corridor, was nonetheless not taken because of political mechanization. So it was pretty clear that even by contemporary planning standards, that there were an extraordinarily large amounts of mechanizations that were taking place in that case. Within the Connecticut court system, the trial judge had originally said you could take some but not others, but the Connecticut Supreme Court basically raised, rose to the challenge and said, you know, planning is so complicated, we have to give carte blanche to all regulators. And it was in that posture, all the parts taken for purposes yet to be defined that the case comes to the Supreme Court. And when Justice Stevens hands the case down, um, it turns out he really does an enormous expansion of existing taking law. Uh, it has long been recognized that taking covers not only cases where you're going to put the land to a public use like a road or a school, but also, uh, since the 1860s, can be used to overcome serious holdout problems, many of which existed at the time, including a situation in which somebody owns a mine at the top of a hill, and the only way in which you get the ore uh, to the railroad tracks is to go over some scrubland, and there's a huge holdout problem as the intermediate fellow says, can't do that. Uh, the Supreme Court in 1905 understood this problem, said, look, we have to be very gingerly about the way in which we go beyond taking for public uses and public purposes, but we're going to allow it in this case. And Justice Stevens says, well, if you could do it there, you can do it anywhere. And the difficulty, of course, is that when you tried to figure out whether or not you could find either a public use or a serious private holdout problem, you fail utterly when you look at the Kilo situation. Uh, the plans in question were for private developments from top to bottom. Uh, they said it was for economic benefit, but there was no evidence in the record which actually indicated they could make it work. 
And of course, there was no holdout problem whatsoever. Ms. Kilo didn't want to sell her land, neither did their neighbors, and the states went to pay a penny over market price for it because it had no idea what it wanted to do with the problem. If you had taken the framework that we had set out in our brief some uh, 11 years ago, the case would have essentially gone away and there would have been no public. But of course, they took the property. They created all sorts of jokes uh, on the part of the public and paired the legitimacy of the United States Supreme Court with this rather bizarre exercise. And of course, showed in fact the way in which the whole thing essentially fell to pieces. What's so important about Ilya's book is it's the first comprehensive documentation of the 10-year sweep of everything that went wrong on the particular site and the various responses that have taken place at the state and the federal level in order to deal with the particular problem. Now, I can't talk about all the multiple variations, but it's worth noting that this is what happened to Miss Kilo's land. Uh, she was able to get her pink house off of the site. It was then left vacant. Uh, then the storms came and the rubble started to wash up, uh, and there it sits completely unused, unloved. At the same time, the large development project that took place, um, that was supposed to take place in the city of New London, never happened. Sometime later, the Pfizer company, which had been very active in trying to promote this particular deal, according to the book, and I think it's pretty solidly documented, it leaves when the tax abatement stops and nothing happens. What do you learn from this? Well, there's a deadly combination of unwise government subsidies on the one hand and an excessive use of the takings power. Uh, which leads to all sorts of untoward social results that could have been avoided by a more modest view of government. And the message that I'd like to leave you with is one that I think the Cato Institute shares, which is the presumption of liberty is not to be regarded as absolute in every case. But it also turns out that it should be sufficiently strong that it takes a lot more than the kind of evanescent and superficial arguments that Justice Stevens advanced in the Kilo case to support this particular piece of conceded planning. Our friend Friedrich Hayek, before he died in 1988, wrote a book with a wonderful title called The Fatal Conceit. And I think we can say that the fatal conceit that government planning knows how to work um, becomes ever more acute as the plans become more ambitious. And the Cato case, the Kilo case should be regarded as an object lesson of everything that can go wrong uh, when government planners are overconfident about their knowledge and think that their motivation is, in fact, sufficiently noble so as to insulate them from all kinds of judicial oversight. This is a tragedy that could have been avoided, and we hope that with the work of the Cato Institute and part through Ilya's book, uh, we will see no repetitions of it in the immediate future. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Richard Epstein, speaking from Chicago. One of the classes I had from Professor Epstein was Roman law, and I remember in the, in the course catalog when you were uh, looking at it, it said, uh, Latin not required, but helpful. So. Now I'll introduce Congressman Tom Reed uh, for some remarks uh, to keynote our, our conference. Representative Tom Reed was first elected uh, to, the, uh, to represent the 29th District of New York in a special election held in November 2010. He took office during the lame duck session of the 111th Congress and began his own full term in January 2011. Representative Reed was re-elected in November 2012 to serve in the new 23rd District uh, and again in 2014. He's the chairman and founder of the Private Property Rights Caucus and a member of the Committee on Ways and Means. He also co-chairs the House Manufacturing Caucus and Congressional Natural Gas Caucus and is vice chair of the Congressional Diabetes Caucus. It's a lot of caucusing. Uh, Congressman Reed has previously served on the Rules, Judiciary, and Transportation Infrastructure Committees. Last year, he began an initiative to spotlight taxpayer dollars being frittered away by federal agencies. 
gosh, that should keep your staff busy. Uh, the program is highlighted more than I'm sure this figure is dated. Uh, the figure I have uh, from the website is 14 million 781,000, million dollars of wasteful spending. I, I don't know if there's a, a meter in your office that keeps cycling up on that. But anyway. DC math, not billions. <laughs> billions or trillions. Right. <laughs> a congressman. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the kind introduction, and thank you to Cato uh, for the opportunity to be here with you today. Um, as uh, you, you know, I'm uh, a representative in the United States House of Representatives, and I'm here to, to share uh, my story and my concerns about something that I know is near and dear to each and every one of you, and that is our fundamental rights uh, as represented in our constitutional guarantees to own and enjoy our property. You know, I'll tell you, um, coming to Congress, learned a few things as a, uh, the youngest of 12. I have eight older sisters, three older brothers, and uh, learned early on, you, you have to try to talk with everybody, you have to try to listen to different perspectives, but when you believe in something, especially if you want some food at the dinner table, you gotta fight for it. And this is a property right that we have to fight for. This is a right that we have to fight for, uh, because I will tell you, private property rights are fundamental. They are fundamental to who we are as Americans. The concept of the American dream is so much more a part of our history that it is embedded into our identity. The American dream is the ideal that every US citizen should have the equal opportunity to succeed, to become prosperous through hard work and determination, and often includes some form of private property ownership. I can remember being the youngest of 12 Essentially, our family had nothing. But when we were raised in the house that my grandfather built, it was taught to me early, from my father, from my mother, that owning your piece of the American dream is something we should all strive for. The concept of the American dream finds its roots in our history, beginning in colonial times. As you all know, our founding fathers fought the American Revolution for independence from tyranny and to combat injustice. Americans saw homes taken over by British soldiers and their goods taxed without consent, which was essentially a limit on their private property and their livelihoods without recourse. Even before the first United States Constitution, private property rights were protected in the Declaration of Colonial Rights. The first Continental Congress explicitly stated that Americans are entitled to life, liberty, and property, and they have never ceded to any sovereign power a right to dispose of either without their consent. Not only did they wage war for our freedom, but our founding fathers had the foresight to stop the government from taking private property by including the same types of protections in the US Bill of Rights, which we rely on today. We all know the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which states, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. This provision was written to protect citizens from unreasonable government seizure of property as they experienced as colonists. As a nation over the course of our history, we have fought wars and continue to expand our influence and drive forward on new land. The United States annexed territory uh, through actions like the ratification of the Northwest Ordinance, which expanded the country into the Ohio River Valley and the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, which doubled the size of the United States. The US even went as far as to pass the Homestead Act of 1862, 
which offered 160 acres of public land to any settler willing to move less, as long as they maintained a continuous residence on that property. The fact that this was even an adequate incentive, think about it, for a young man or woman to take his family out west because of the enticement of the ability to own their land demonstrates just how valuable private property is to our society. According to this history, we developed a cultural obsession with the American dream, rooted in the core principle of private property ownership, private property that belongs to you and not the government. However, the American dream is under attack. I know this firsthand, representing a district in the great state of New York. In December 2014, I saw our governor, Andrew Cuomo, unilaterally banned hydraulic fracturing, which is essentially the process to develop natural gas rights on individual property owners in the state of New York. Countless constituents approached me, wondering when their voices would be heard. They saw my district borders the Pennsylvania state border. They saw within eyesight across the border the development of natural gas on people's property and the economic revitalization and rebirth occurring throughout the rural areas of northern Pennsylvania. I sat in the kitchen of a homeowner in the state of Pennsylvania, and we were talking about the development of natural gas and what it represented. And I was invited there by his daughter, who was adamantly opposed to the development of that natural gas. But as her father said to me, I know that she's opposed to it. But this was my grandfather's farm. And that natural gas development, that well pad that you see on the back 40, is putting her kids through college and securing a college degree without any debt. You talk about using your property rights to advance a personal and global cause. Many of our farmers were already struggling in New York to make ends meet, threatening the next generation of farmers where they were unable to make do by just working the land. We in New York were hoping for the economic boom that natural gas development would come to our area and offer, and yet the development never came. One of my constituents, Neil Vitale, one uh, of my personal guests at the recent State of the Union that President Obama gave, he highlighted it best when he said he could see from his property the lands of Pennsylvania, literally yards away, being developed and prosperity and revitalization occurring within his sites. And he asked the question to me, why does the state of New York think people leave in droves to go elsewhere when we adopt policies that take away their rights and force them to go? Stories like Neil's eventually came pouring in these conversations developed into a broader discussion about widespread and fundamental property rights throughout our district. Then I began to hear from landowners across the nation concerned about government intrusion into their lives. I heard stories from residents of Minnesota concerned about the proposed buffer zone rule changes, which requires mandatory setbacks from bodies of water. Estimates show that 125,000 acres could be taken out of production by this rule. These acres are owned by people, by Americans. 
I heard from a farmer in Pennsylvania being taken to court by his own government as a result of normal farming practices, which he had undertaken for years. I heard from a farmer in California where federal agents walked onto his land unannounced and the subsequent years of legal battles and wrangling with regulators that followed when all he wanted to do was farm his land that was passed down to him by his father. Landowners across our nation are being negatively affected by government intrusion and it weighs them down. When they try to fight back, they spend their money fighting expensive legal proceedings against the seemingly limitless resources of the government, simply to keep the property they have owned for decades that they have paid taxes on and that they have maintained. To me, this is inherently unfair to all hardworking Americans. After 200 years of legal protection and running directly contrary to our history, our culture, and our values, this pattern of overreach by our government was highlighted by a singular court case, the case we're here to talk about today, Kelo versus New London. And as you heard from Pre Professor Epstein, the facts of the case are well known. The city of New London confiscated Suzette Kelo's home so a private corporation could build a new facility and utilize the guise of economic development to do so. The government claimed that seizing the property under eminent domain was necessary to complete a redevelopment project. In a perversion of the interpretation of the Fifth Amendment, in my opinion, the government repeatedly cited the takings clause as justification for taking Ms. Kelo's private property. The Supreme Court held, as we know, in a 5-4 decision that the government was able to seize the properties in question, transfer private property between owners in the name of economic development. Bluntly, this is not what our founding fathers had in mind when they drafted the Fifth Amendment. If they were willing to wage war over something as important as the fundamental right to private property and economic freedom, who are we to trample on these rights? It is boggling to me to see that our own government would use a singular court ruling to defy, undermine, and even sabotage this inherent and uniquely American principle. Today, 10 years after the Kelo decision, the property where Suzette's home once stood is vacant and a desolate lot. After spending millions of dollars of taxpayer money and forcing several hardworking families from their homes, this economic development plan was a complete failure. The abandoned 90-acre lot in the heart of New London, is a, New London is a chilling example of the danger posed by government overreach and intrusion into the lives of American citizens and intervention into the free market. It fundamentally begs the question, if the government decides to undertake economic development as a public use and take your property to do so, what else can the government do? Where does it end? This is just the problem. The possibilities are endless. Even more troublesome than agricultural impacts is the problem in urban settings. And I don't believe this gets as much attention as it really deserves to get. Where the power to take property is frequently abused by government for unnecessary and unreasonable purposes. And as one of our panelists will say, Dr. Soman, which is uh, uh, so artfully and in a positive way highlighted that this type of development, this type of taking, transferring property to private interest for economic development tends to victimize the poor, racial minorities, and the politically weak. 
Dr. Soman points out that eminent domain takings disproportionately occur in poor and minority neighbors, which inflicts great harm on the individual landowners in their communities. Ten years later, we are still fighting against the implications of the Kelo decision. Just this week in the T-HUD bill, appropriations bill, we had language to push back on this expansive overreach of the U.S. government. We can and are chipping away at this decision piece by piece, but ultimately we need real reform. For the sake of our landowners, the constitutional right to private property must be defended. We in Congress must do more. We need to protect these fundamental property rights of all Americans. That is why I partnered with many of my colleagues in Congress to bring attention to these matters. I formed the Private Property Rights Caucus with members from Maine, Alabama, to California. The Private Rights Caucus provides a platform to educate members of Congress on this issue, demonstrates how landowners across the country are being adversely affected, and discuss practical solutions to protect the constitutional rights of all property owners as Americans. I authored and co-sponsored the Defense of Property Rights Act. The bill will promote government accountability and will offer protection for property owners across the country. This provides citizens with an opportunity to seek redress in court when government action significantly impairs the value of their property or unreasonably restricts the use of their property. A right of relief Americans do not enjoy today. The legislation hopefully will force government to think twice before acting and introduces accountability in a system that has often been abused by government to the detriment of landowners. The Defense of Property Rights Act is an important and necessary step towards keeping government in its proper role. As a Congress, it is our duty to make sure government is kept in check and we must not be complacent when the government infringes on our individual liberties and restricts our constitutional rights. We must ensure that government does not extend beyond the limitations placed on its power. I'm reminded often in Congress, as the Scottish historian and philosopher David Hume once said, it is seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. And yet, unfortunately, hard-fought rights established by the blood of our founding fathers were lost with the drop of a gavel roughly 10 years ago, and they only continue to erode. We must coordinate our efforts to provide the proper protections for property owners to ensure those sacrifices were not suffered in vain. Together, let's put a stop to the erosion of our liberty and the degradation of this essential human right that fuels the American dream. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today.